0: everybody everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Scared to Death podcast. My name is Peter Montwell. And uh, today we have a special guest who, um, after receiving his doctorate degree from the University of Kansas, is credited with being one of the founders and intellectual pioneers of the terror management theory. He's currently a professor at Skidmore College. And with that, I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Sheldon Solomon. Uh, Dr. Solomon, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the Scared to Death audience, anything yeah, you'd like to uh, share?
1: I'd be delighted to, Peter. Thank you for having me. My name is Sheldon Solomon. As uh, Peter told you, I'm a professor at Skidmore College.
0: Um, so first, how did you end up uh, meeting and working with uh, Tom Posinski and Jeff Greenberg?
1: Yeah, great question, uh, Peter. We were uh, fortunate to have uh, been tossed together in the same uh, graduate program in experimental social psychology, at the University of Kansas in the late 1970s. And and, uh, frankly, we became good friends. Our our mutual uh, love of sports and uh, music and uh, food and and just movies and clowning around uh, fostered our friendship. And then we realized that we had common interests. And there were two questions we worked on as grad students. One just had to do with what self-esteem and what does it do and how does it do it? And, and the other question uh, was, how come people can't get along with other people who uh, don't share their beliefs uh, about the world? Uh, and, uh, and, and we did some studies and, and then we all got our PhDs and then I came to Skidmore College and quite by accident stumbled on Ernest Becker's books uh, at the Skidmore Library. And I was immediately taken by, uh, uh, first of all, the simplicity of his prose and the profundity of his arguments. And I called Jeff and Tom and I'm like, you have to read this fucking guy. He is addressing the questions that we spent our graduate school days pondering in a way that I thought was so powerful because it essentially used the same analysis to address both questions we thought they were just two different questions so in a nutshell that's how we got started
0: yeah so um you saw i guess from reading uh becker's books um was there any like key moments in that first like early stages uh leading to the development of the theory
1: yeah sort of i mean again great great question um you know he he in the birth and death of meaning he says i wanna figure out uh, you know, uh, why people act like they do, and that he insisted that that was gonna require interdisciplinary inquiry. And then in his book, The Denial of Death, when he argued that a significant proportion of human behavior is motivated by efforts to avoid or transcend death, and that that could help us explain why people need self-esteem and why we have difficulties getting along with other folks, yeah, we were just sitting around and we're like, wow, uh, this is really potent. And yet, Becker wrote like 14 books and uh, he was a great writer and a really important thinker, but he wasn't an empirical scientist himself. And so, what we got to thinking is w- w- maybe we can take these ideas, and by the way, Becker couldn't get a job. People just said, wow, this is speculative nonsense. There's no evidence. And, and so what really got us started uh, was uh, we felt like uh, the only way that people would take Becker's ideas seriously uh, is if we could provide empirical corroboration of them. And so what we call terror management theory is essentially our effort Uh, to frame Becker's ideas in a manner that could allow us to derive hypotheses that we could then subject to empirical scrutiny. And I'm babbling a bit, uh, but I do think this is an important point because uh, our argument has been that terror management theory, uh, the only thing original about it is that we've never claimed that there's anything original about it. We're taking, uh, Becker says that he was synthesizing ideas from psychology and philosophy and theology that went back thousands of years and converged on the notion uh, that uh, fear of death drives most of what people do. Yeah, and we found that compelling. And so our thought is uh, let's take 14 books and reduce it into a paragraph uh, where we ultimately, as you know, uh, just hypothesize that the uniquely human awareness of death gives rise to potentially debilitating existential terror that we manage by embracing cultural worldviews uh, that mitigate death anxiety by giving us a sense that life has meaning and we have value. So that's terror management theory, 14 of Becker's books that I just spit out in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Um... So you mentioned like uh, Brett Becker was using you uh, interdisciplinary works like he was combining psych philosophy and all that and then you mentioned like at the start of um your uh, answer kind of like making like terror management's like an interdisciplinary sort of thing so considering that and the recent XP conference last month I remember noticing just like a ton of different like disciplines like approaching terror management theory at different ways so I just wanted to See if you could describe how you, um, that kind of development uh, from like that first XP conference when it was probably just psych people, and then how it's sort of grown throughout the years, and especially with uh, ICEP as well.
1: Yeah, well, actually, that's a a fine uh, query. Um, It's actually not for us to judge as Mm -hmm. the so called originators uh, of terror management theory Um, either. Uh, its veracity or influence. But, but as you put it, Peter, we started um, doing terror management theory in the 1980s. Uh, when we first got started, there were three people on earth that liked it, me and Tom and Jeff. Uh, and in our first presentation of the theory, I think it was 1984, at the Society for Experimental Social Psychology Conference, You know, there were like 200 people in the room when I started talking, and there were maybe 50 uh, by the time I finished. And so the minute I said, we have a theory, people got up and started walking out. And then I said it was based uh, on psychoanalysis, existential philosophy, uh, and uh, Darwin and other people started uh, running away. And so psychologists were not um, uh, overly enthusiastic Uh, about about terror management theory, in part because it was broad and inter- interdisciplinary at a time uh, when psychological discourse was getting more narrowly concerned. And I don't mean that pejoratively, it was just a change in emphasis. Yeah, but people didn't care for it. And no one would publish our first theoretical paper on terror management theory for almost 10 years. And again, and then people just kept saying, dude, you gotta have evidence. And so we started collecting evidence, but even after we had uh, lots of experimental evidence, um, uh, reviewers still didn't like it. So our, our first terror management empirical paper is in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And that wouldn't have gotten in except for the editor, Abe Tesser, who finally said, the reviewers don't like this, and I don't even like it, but I can't explain these findings any other way. And so I think it should be published and let's make this a matter of science rather than personal opinion. And the same thing happened with the first theoretical paper that ends up in 1991 and advances in experimental social psychology. Mark Zanna, the editor, overruled the reviewers. said, you guys don't like it. We had already had two JPSP papers of empirical evidence and the theoretical paper was still rejected. I'm not saying that to sound petty so much as to establish, Peter, that people just didn't like it, Yeah, right? And then what happened uh, is, and I'm being a little long-winded, but terror management theory was just our hobby. It didn't become a real science until other scholars started to get interested and it was Victor Florian and Mario Michelincer and Gilad Hirschberger at Bar-Ilan University at the time in Israel, that's where the first terror management theory lab originated. Not, at, not in our end of the woods, but I would submit that besides the fact that they have done great work that has added very much to our understanding of these matters, well, that's when we got started. That's when we're like, wow, people think that This is worthy of pursuit. And by the way, that's when critics of terror management theory uh, also got going, but but that's what science is supposed to be, right? Critical skepticism between people of goodwill. So anyway, we were thrilled in Amsterdam whenever there was the first uh, XP conference to meet with people all over the world. Uh, who were not only familiar with our work, but whose ideas we knew right away uh, were gonna add richness to the enterprise. Yeah, but then fast forward to uh, a little bit later um, in terms of the ISSEP of today, um, this is quite magnificent and beyond our wildest imagination that terror management theory has gotten to the point Uh, where Tom and Jeff and I are essentially irrelevant in that there's just too many people, including the folks at your fine terror management lab uh, that uh, are doing um, incredible work. Uh, And again, not to go all uh, academic-y on you, but Thomas Kuhn and a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, his point is that that's when you know uh, you've got a real science. He calls it normal science. And that's when you have a lot of people around the world engaged with these ideas in a variety of disciplines. And so, um, yeah, I I guess, yeah, that's where things stand. It took a couple of decades for psychologists to accept um, the legitimacy of the work. And now our work is just a a subcomponent of, as you know, experimental existential psychology. And what makes its current incarnation in the ISSEP so poignantly profound is that uh, we're now forging connections throughout the world in disciplines that go way beyond psychology in ways that I see uh, having uh, very potentially positive effects moving forward. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you for that answer. I guess um to follow up with that um how would how could we uh put out a question on twitter asking um suggestions for what to ask you and this question came up of um and it kind of relates to what you were just talking about but how might uh the research in terror management theory um these days and subsequent application could be used to sort of make the world better
1: yeah uh, you know, great question. And mm. of course, to be silly, if I could answer that <laughs> in a compelling fashion, I'd be chugging rum out of a coconut with my Nobel Prize on the beach. And yet, uh, I, I do, all, uh, I, I think it is important. One of the things that we admire a lot about Becker was his insistence that, the, that ideas uh, be used Uh, in a practical fashion. So he was an enlightenment pilgrim uh, who just said, I'm not about knowledge for the sake of knowledge. We gotta do it somehow. Uh, And uh, other folks have written about this and and so have we uh, because sometimes it's really not clear. As you know, a lot of our work was originally designed to explain uh, the most unfortunate and unsavory aspects uh, of human behavior. And, and you know, so we know, for example, you remind people that they're gonna die. Uh, they hate people who are different. They're more likely to vote for populist leaders. They're uncomfortable with their bodies. They trash the environment. They smoke more cigarettes and eat more candy. Uh, they watch more television. It increases uh, all kinds of psychological disorders. And so superficially, it's like, wow, I don't see uh, how this is of any use except to make me an informed spectator as I witness humankind being the first form of life to voluntarily render itself extinct. Uh, but that's you know, that's on the downside. Uh, on the upside, uh, you know, if if we see uh, if we take seriously the notion that our psychological equanimity day to day is based on, uh, perceiving ourselves as creatures of value in a world of meaning, well, I think that gives us a, a, a bit of conceptual insight or inroads that we could keto in constructive ways. All right, so uh, for example, we, one thing that we know uh, is that um, when people are reminded of their mortality, they become more helpful to other individuals, all right, but only other individuals that they consider to be part of their group. All right, well, that, and as, as you know, we are, are at the same time, uh, we tend to be more hateful and disdainful towards people uh, who we view as different. I, well, but Tom Pasinski and some of his students did what I think is one of the finest studies uh, ever in our discourse. And that's where they used what they called a common humanity prime. They brought people into the lab and they said, look, you know, we as humans have much more in common than we are different. And, and as corny as it sounds, we really are members of one big family. Right, well, when you do that, if you subsequently remind people of death, they don't hate somebody who looks different because after all, there's nobody to hate if you see every human as belonging to the same group. Right now, if we could redefine ourselves as members of the same tribe, that being humanity, then some of the same psychological processes Uh, that can sometimes uh, produce very malignant effects uh, might be kind of 180, so that they can bring out the best in us. Similarly, uh, different kinds of worldviews can foster different kinds of outcomes. And so uh, we have done studies uh, where we show that uh, if you make salient to Americans, Uh, that in America, we take pride in in being open-minded and tolerant of other people. Uh, Well, uh, when you then remind people of death, they actually like folks who are different even more. So here's another possible inroad, right? And then there's other folks who point out, starting with Ernest Becker in the 1970s, uh, that if we wanna make the world a a little bit of a better place, uh, then we have to understand why most of Western civilization as we know it is a petri dish of psychopathology uh, where depression uh, is 10 times the rate that it was after World War II. And, And what Becker argued is that whenever there's wholesale dissatisfaction in a community, we should look at the standards by which we acquire self-esteem to see if they're realistically attainable by the average individual, right? And so, and what Becker pointed out, and this was that this is as true today, or even more so than it was in the 1970s, is we live in a world that is psychologically devastating, because we're taught from a very young age that if you're going to be uh, worthwhile in, in a Western society, then you need to have a shit ton of money. Uh, and, and we're basically told if you tried hard enough, uh, you could have as much money as Oprah Winfrey or Steve Jobs. Uh, but if you're 40 years old, making minimum wage, working at Taco Bell, but that's because uh, you're an idiot. All right, But the reality is, is that there is no economic mobility for the most part in the United States. And so very few people are ever going to be successful by traditional standards. And that's equally true, if not more so for women, because they they're also told that they're supposed to be rich. All right. But if I can't floss my teeth with them, they're too fat. And if they get older than 25 or so, they're too old. So we live in a culture that is crippling. Uh, because we teach our children to embrace unattainable standards. And a guy named Michael Sandel, he's a philosopher at Harvard, he wrote wrote a book recently called The Tyranny of Merit. Uh, And he makes the same point that uh, we we live in a world uh, where you only matter if you're the best at what you do. But if you think about it, that means N minus one people in every category are failures. And what Sandel said is that most people feel either demoralized or enraged. Well, back to making the world a better place. Uh, One thing to do is to revisit, as Nietzsche said, we have to reevaluate all values. Uh, There was a time, and I don't wanna over-romanticize the past, where being merely, when Jimmy Carter uh, was president, um, he, he said, I'm worried about us as Americans, we, we value how much one has, but we no longer value uh, just being a decent person. And my point is that if we could tweak the standards by which we teach ourselves and our kids uh, to evaluate themselves, uh, that also, I think, could go a long distance. I right, finally, and I'm going to shut up in a second. I like recent efforts to juxtapose, Peter, what's been happening in positive psychology uh, with terror management theory. So uh, there's work on mindfulness, there's work on awe, there's work on humility, uh, and we're doing some stuff on gratitude. And and I'm really big on this. I have have, uh, ambivalence about self-esteem these days in that self-esteem is a cultural construction. So basically, and I know I'm gonna sound a little glib here, but I don't mind, uh, we live in a pathologically narcissistic, almost sociopathic culture, uh, where to feel good about yourself, uh, if you'll pardon my profanity, you almost have to behave in an assholic fashion. And so what some people have pointed out is that self-esteem does serve to mitigate anxiety but it also often has downstream adverse consequences depending on the cultural standards that are embraced in pursuit of it, right? Whereas awe, humility, gratitude, mindfulness uh, require nothing in the way of downward social comparison. And any one of us that slept in a bed last night or had breakfast this morning, uh, we have a lot to be grateful for and humble about. So I, I see... Uh, And 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 honestly, for what it's worth, uh, yeah, I'm kind of sick of, uh, in a way, uh, we spent 40 years trying to understand, you know, the kind of dark side uh, of human affairs. Uh, And anyone who's watching the news today, I hope will agree that it's not time to abandon that pursuit. Uh, But in my twilight years, I'm much more interested Uh, in what that fine question proposes, which is how can we use these ideas to foster personal growth and social progress? That's a great question. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So just to kind of, I guess, bring um, the topic maybe to more uh, recent issues, because some of what you're saying was like firing like neurons in my brain, but um, it's particularly, you were talking about um, like, teaching the values um, differently, like U.S. values. I remember just being taught like it's working hard. It's like you have to like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like that famous saying. Yep. So I think like you're mentioning, like it starts in the schools. And so I just wanted to get your perspective on, I guess, the recent bill in Florida. Um, that's pretty controversial and all over the news. And just like how it, like is that part of would that be part of that problem of like teaching students, I guess, or teaching the youth about like more discriminatory than acceptance. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. This is probably not the place uh, for uh, what what requires a more serious and extended discussion. But uh, anybody who hasn't noticed that we're on the cusp of a third world war uh, while the United States is literally no longer a democracy. Uh, we are uh, an authoritarian regime, uh, uh, not the present one, the the one that uh, was uh, voted out of office and we're right on the cusp uh, of fascism. And uh, fascists have a way of, uh, as Goebbels, who was Hitler's minister of propaganda, He's like, always accuse the other people of what it is that you're doing. And so back to the laws in Florida, the laws in Texas, Um, we right now are at a very tenuous moment when it comes to the point where it is illegal to mention the truth. Uh, we're We're in egregious difficulty. And so I'm thinking of what's happening in Florida with the gay laws, the uh, critical race theory. Um, And these are um, concerns that that I think anybody uh, who is a fan of democracy, regardless of of your political preferences, this really uh, is not so much a political argument uh, as much as taking what eric chrome said seriously in the 1940s so he fled nazi germany uh, to because of hitler and he comes to the u.s and he writes the book escape from freedom where he said yeah the nazis are bad uh, but i see americans as ripe for fascism uh, and um, and at the same time a guy near a guy named sinclair lewis wrote a book called it can't happen here in 1936 i believe when he's like, and it's a, it's a novel, it's a crappy one, uh, but it, it's about an intellectually and morally bankrupt businessman who teams up with Christian fundamentalists and, and uh, the the mass media uh, to steal an election and, and then to turn a democracy into a totalitarian state. We are literally, this is happening before our eyes uh, as we speak, and. Uh, you know, so apropos of nothing, anybody who's out there, um, if you're old enough to vote and you're not registered to vote, um, you're being irresponsible. And if you're registered to vote and you don't, uh, you're also <laughs> being quite irresponsible at a moment uh, where it's time for the youth to step up because we don't have enough time to be silly for for ignorant mayonnaise chomping, uh, white trailer trash, uh, waving American flags um, in, in largely the Midwest. Uh, and again, I'm being intentionally disparaging because that's where uh, the political clout uh, of what I would consider to be the fascistic tendencies is primarily located, but it's also sustained uh, in large measure by very, large corporate interests all right I've gotten far afield let's (laughs) get back to what we're talking about
0: yeah um so I guess to branch off that um there's like a lot of connectedness now because like I like if living in Virginia like I shouldn't really know anything happening in Florida or Texas considering the miles between us but social media has definitely created that like um interconnectedness amongst like basically the globe so I wanted to get your perspective on like I, I don't mean to be rude, but you've definitely seen the evolution of social media throughout the years yeah. and um, how, do we, how do you see kind of uh, terror management theory and social media like moving toward moving together like in the future?
1: Yeah well, I, it scares me uh, because social media um, is has radically transformed the world as we know it for better uh, and for worse. Uh, it makes the viral transmission, of information and misinformation, uh, staggeringly amplified. Uh, and, uh, and that's why I'm so concerned in part. And so again, if we have more time, I gave a talk over the weekend uh, about Hannah Arendt's book on the origin of totalitarianism. And the title of the talk was Hitler and Twitler. And, and the point that I wanted to make is that former President Trump, uses all of the propaganda techniques that Hitler employed, starting with the notion of the big lie and the recognition that you're appealing to ignorant people and that you make no attempt to reason, you just appeal uh, to fear that you transmute into hatred. But what Trump had at his disposal is the benefit of social media. So there's research, and remember, he had 70 million followers uh, who would be hanging on every tweet that they would then push on to other followers. And what we know, and I can send you citations for everything that I'm about to say, uh, is that, for one thing, the emotions of upwards of a hundred million Americans were modulated on an hourly basis in response to the emotional taint of Trump's tweets, right? So, and and so when Trump would be angry in his tweets and then you measure, you ask the people that day uh, to just rate their mood, well, they were also angry. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that when Trump said to 100 million people, it's time to march down to the Capitol to take back our country, uh, that that really did serve to galvanize them. Moreover, there was a study at uh, Cornell University that looked at, I think, 60 or, I don't know, 30-something million uh, articles about the COVID pandemic. And and what they found is that about 40% of the misinformation around the world with regard to COVID came through former President Trump. All right, so uh, just think about that. This is historically unprecedented when you can, uh, uh, you can serve as an emotional gyroscope and, and mobilize hundreds of uh, mil- literally millions of people. Uh, and then uh, you can literally uh, direct misinformation everywhere. And Steve Bannon, who was Trump's version of garing uh, he said, that's how you do it. You flood the zone with shit. And I'm quoting him uh, word for word. And so they have used social media to literally lobotomize a substantial proportion of America uh, who are already prone Uh, to be lobotomized. I like how Frank Zappa put it uh, after Ronald Reagan was elected president. He said, the American public treats intelligent behavior as if it were some sort of hideous physical deformity. And and this is not, again, a, a pejorative indictment of the intelligence of Americans. Uh, We are, however, profoundly ignorant to the point where I don't think the average American uh, has the skills to be a citizen uh, in a civil society. Um, And again, I don't want to sound like Father Time, but back in the old days, even nitwits understood the three branches of government. Uh, Most Americans can't even name that. uh, And they don't understand the way that our government works. And uh, I think we're going to be in extraordinary difficulty as a result. So back to social media. Um, Yeah, I'm not damning the technology itself. Although I will tell you, when I go to California, and I hang out in Silicon Valley with people that invented this stuff, they don't let their kids anywhere near this. So they they understand the lobotomizing effect of these technologies. And moreover, the Facebook people, as I understand it, uh, they recognize that, uh, you know, how much uh, mis- and disinformation prevails, not only on that platform, but any other one that's algorithmically driven, because that's the other thing, uh, Peter, about social media is that um, in, in the past, what you saw uh, was not necessarily affected by what you have already seen. Whereas, as you know, if you look at something online, the next minute, something along those lines, but more extreme, is going to pop up on your device.
0: Interesting. All right. Thank you for um, your response to to that question. Um, Yeah,
1: you can edit any of this out, by the way. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no honestly it's all good so I mean you're really you're doing a good job um I feel like you've done this before but um to transition a little bit um kind of more uh, relaxed uh questions uh yeah do you uh for TMT researchers that might be looking uh for inspiration what would you say is the next big uh field to be conquered I guess if that's a good word or to be explored yeah. more.
1: Wow. Well, I like the idea that you had already brought up, which is to think in terms uh, of applications of terror management theory that serve a uh, 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 proactive pro-growth and pro-social uh, purposes. I, I also feel that it's time uh, for somebody who's not on the cusp of senility like myself, uh, to think about uh, re-articulating terror management theory in terms of where things now are with regard to the study of culture and human development. Remember, uh, Becker wrote in the 1970s, and like any of us, you're both the victim and the beneficiary. Uh, of your time and place. And and while I still find Becker's ideas uh, profound and compelling, and while I also uh, think that terror management theory is not yet wrong uh, in the sense that it still produces interesting hypotheses and data that is generally in accord with them, uh, I think there's other developments. And so I, I like a guy named Joseph Henrich, he's the uh, chair of the anthropology department at Harvard and, and he writes about cultural evolution. Uh, and, um, and and I think that uh, we need to think about where terror management theory sits relative to current understanding uh, of the origin and evolution of culture uh, because uh, from a terror management theory perspective, culture is just uh, the way that we extract or impose extract meaning from or impose meaning on the world in order to reduce death anxiety. Well, Henrik's point is that culture it is a body of knowledge and behavior uh, that is essentially the accumulated wisdom of, uh, of particular groups over long amounts of time, uh, and I believe he makes a very compelling case for that view, in which case we need to position terror management theory in the context of that notion, right? Similarly, there's a guy named Michael Tomasello, and he's a developmental psychologist, and he wrote a book called Becoming Human, I think, and he offers a theory of human cognitive development that... It is actually a symbolic extrapolation from primate attachment. And I find his work uh, remarkably important. And so if I had another 10 or 20 years, uh, I, I, or if I was in a graduate setting uh, with PhD students, I would say somebody should be looking at that. I know there's a pile of people that are uh, looking at clinical applications. I know there's a bunch of folks, including um, uh, those in your fine lab, uh, that are interested in the implications of these ideas for just the way that we communicate with each other. To be silly, but not to my advice to new researchers, it is to uh, don't get too interested in terror management theory, except to the extent that it resonates with you. And then uh, don't uh, uh, be be childish in the best sense of the word. What is it that uh, interests you about yourself or life in general? Then think about whether or not there's an existential uh, angle to what thrills you. Uh, I think fortunately, there's almost nothing that has to do with people that doesn't have an existential dimension. Yeah, so, uh, you know, and again, I I know I'm sounding a little silly, but uh, I'm really enthused when we have these gatherings like the conferences and I see the young folks and and I'm like, wow, uh, you know, this is good. Let let me get out of the way. Just put me in a jar of formaldehyde uh, next to the lab, uh, because I, I'm um, yeah. I'm really optimistic that um, that we're, there's a generation of new scholars that are not only well trained and well versed in psychological discourse, but uh, they, in the spirit of interdisciplinarity, often have other connections with other disciplines. So I'm confident that's going to yield a, few, a fruitful future.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for that. Um... Next thing, I just wanted to um, ask you if um, there's anything in your career that you would like to uh, brag about that you never had the chance to before um, that you might've just been especially proud of?
1: Yeah, I would like to brag uh, about that. Um, I've never declined an invitation to speak Uh, anywhere, whether it be at Harvard or a prison or a grade school or a restaurant, and that I've never um, not responded to uh, any inquiry, you know, be it a phone call or a letter or an email. Maybe that's not anything to brag about, and maybe I'm naive, but I always saw, uh, like, Plato and the the ancient Greeks, that people in the academy uh, are very rare, let's face it, we're generally totally useless. When the shit hits the fan, you need a plumber more than you need a social psychologist. And and that society uh, puts a lot of resources into creating institutions that allow people like myself uh, to literally get paid to think about things and to exchange ideas with interesting people. I always therefore saw it as my uh, obligation uh, as a scientist and an academic uh, to uh, be responsive and, and to not do so uh, by any evaluative standard. So a lot of times uh, I, I do speak a lot uh, and I enjoy it. But a lot of my colleagues are like, why are you going to East Jesus Community College? And I'm like, because I was there. And and frankly, the honor students at East Jesus uh, were much more impressive than my last visit to Yale. No disrespect to the Ivy League, because that's not my point. My point is that there's great people everywhere. I've had uh, dynamic conversations with prison inmates that dwarf the interest that I've had Uh, with stodgy academics. So I'll brag about that. (laughs)
0: Cool. Um, Another question about yourself. Um, If you could go back to any point in your life and give yourself some advice, what is one thing you would say to that person?
1: (laughs) Uh, Okay. If I I could do that, what I would say to myself is uh, that um, to actually uh, again, it will sound corny, uh, but if, if I could go back, I would say to myself, um, you should have really listened to yourself um, and to be more true to my own desires. I don't know if that, to to render that sensible um, uh, with a particular example, I've always loved music, Peter, and I always would have loved to um, play the guitar. And, and Yet I never touched a guitar till I was thirty years old, because I was afraid that it, you know if I'm not going to be like a great guitar player, why even pick it up? So, and, and my point is is like here I am teaching about how stupid it is to measure yourself by somebody else's standards. When I finally did uh, play the guitar, I played the same three chords badly that I did forty years ago. But my point is, is that that's what I would tell uh, my younger self. I, I knew when I was a, a little punk uh, that, uh, that it, it was ultimately unfortunate to, um, as this guy, um, Carlos Castaneda, put it in his Don Juan books the average person seeks approval in the eyes of others and calls it self confidence. You know, a real warrior seeks approval in their own eyes and calls it humility. So that would be the thing that I would tell myself is listen to yourself, dude, because there are things that you said, uh, but evidently the flaps of skin over your ears did not allow the words to enter your own
0: cranium. (laughs) That's good. Thank you. Um, You say your answers are corny, but they're pretty profound. So I just want to put that out there.
1: Well, thank you, (laughs) Pete.
0: Anyway, um, so the last uh, question I have is going to be, this uh first time ever on the scared to death podcast a little rapid fire section so i have a timer right here um with four minutes on the clock we can scrub it down to three if you like Wow. Go ahead. four okay so we'll go with four um and then i'm just gonna ask you a question and then you can take as long as you want to answer or as short as you want to answer and then that'll be it so you ready to get started ready All right, so I'm starting it now. So, first question uh, What is one place you would love to go visit?
1: Love to see Brazil and South America.
0: Okay. Uh, If you had to have dinner with uh, any one person that are alive, who would that be?
1: These days, I'd want a snack with Abe Lincoln.
0: Okay. Um, If you got to have it, what would be your last meal if you were placed on death row?
1: All right, pizza, chocolate, ice cream, hamburger, steak, chicken, salad, pasta, beer, <laughs> uh, brownies with a bunch of marijuana in them. I'm being silly, but I, I would I would want to have every food that I've ever enjoyed and prolong the meal uh, for as long as possible <laughs> if if I wasn't terminated until I finished. Yeah, mm-hmm. but basically the the food pyramid. Of New Jersey, pizza, chocolate, ice cream. Yeah. <laughs>
0: if uh, you could be present for any event in history, what event would that be?
1: Uh, you yeah, know, that was a tough one. I'm going with the Big Bang. May as well. Big bang. Go. Yeah. Be original there.
0: Okay. Uh, are there more wheels or uh, doors in the world?
1: Wow. I, I hope <laughs> wheels, but I fear doors.
0: <laughs> uh, do you prefer short hair or long hair?
1: uh long although I'm a little cropped for the moment
0: (laughs) okay uh what would you say
1: is your biggest regret yeah back to the music thing I Mm -hmm. I just it's again and I'm I'm almost mature enough I hope that it wouldn't matter if I wasn't great I I just wished I had the courage and fortitude to do things that I wanted when I wanted Mm -hmm. yeah uh
0: what is your favorite season
1: all of them i'm gonna try and have it i i i really do i like them all Mm -hmm. i like being in new york because there are four seasons
0: (laughs) true that yeah uh is what scares
1: you the climate and the fascism Mm
0: -hmm. uh do you have a favorite childhood memory
1: yeah um it's embarrassing but it's quite vivid. It was my first encounter with a hot fudge Sunday.
0: Can you imagine how that went um, yeah what is uh, one stereotype of people have about you?
1: Uh, I would say the prevailing stereotype is that I'm as uh, mentally disheveled as my physical appearance would suggest. I still laugh um when I walk through the halls at Skidmore because the, after the pandemic uh there's a lot of new people and a lot of faculty yell out at me asking when I'm coming to empty the trash
0: <laughs> oh man I'm sorry
1: it's fine <laughs> um
0: what is your uh favorite holiday uh Thanksgiving Thanksgiving mm-hmm. uh what is your biggest pet peeve
1: Oh, uh, that um Although there's turn signals on most cars, many Americans are not yet aware of that fact.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is true. It might've been a new addition. Yeah. Um, Are you a morning person or a night owl? Uh, Very morning. Mm -hmm. Would you say you're an optimist or a realist?
1: I wanna, I'm gonna be a cautiously optimistic realist.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, and last question. Probably the most heavy question of the day. Uh, Is there an afterlife or no afterlife?
1: Um, No afterlife for me, although the molecules that I am composed of will continue their cosmic dance Mm in eternity.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. And with that, that was the last question we had prepared. Um, I want to thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. Um, I really appreciate all your answers and the thought you gave into them. Um, And yeah, thank
1: you again for coming. Yeah, no, my pleasure, Peter. Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, to the audience, thank you all for listening. And I hope to uh, have you all back for the next episode. Have a good rest of your, your all's day.